2: Thank you.
3: In the future, anthropologists will know a lot about life in the 21st century, assuming they can figure out Word documents or JPEG files. I mean, they'll know about our eating habits, our social habits, our DNA now that it's been sequenced. But we don't have any such easy records when we look to the past.
2: We often have to rely on physical evidence, sometimes haphazardly recorded. At times, history has to be literally unearthed. Occasionally, that's very ancient history, like the bones of animals who disappeared long ago. And sometimes it's history that's far more recent, such as the slave trade of just a few centuries back. These are very different stories, but they both illustrate the way we use the oldest types of forensic evidence to understand where we came from and what our ancestors have done. We have stories from the world of paleontology and anthropology coming up. I'm Molly Bentley.
3: And I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science. Nearly 350 years ago, a guy by name of Robert Plott, a curator at a museum in England, got hold of a mysterious thigh bone. This femur was far larger than our own, and Plott figured the bulked-up bone came from a vanished species of giants. Well, he
2: was right, in a way. But the bone wasn't from a race of giant humans. It came from a group of animals we now call them dinosaurs. (laughs) ¶¶
3: which, by the way, is a fabricated Latin word meaning terrible lizards.
2: And Scott Sampson works with those terrible lizards. He has the job that a lot of kids dream of.
3: As a dinosaur paleontologist at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, he spends hours upon hours in the hot sun in Africa, the U.S. and Canada, walking across the desert, squinting at the sand, looking for clues of the strange and gargantuan, and sometimes small, terrestrial vertebrates that once stomped across our planet more than 65 million years ago. But his persistence pays off. Because it's one thing to find a
2: bone, it's another to find a whole new type of dinosaur. But Dr. Sampson and his team did just that. Unearthed in Utah, Nasutoceratops once roamed North America, when the continent was not just one, but divided by a sea into two, Laramidia in the west and Appalachia in the east. Nasudoceratops, a big-nosed, big-horned dinosaur, lived in the southern part of Laramidia, and it seems not to have mingled with its cousins in the north. It's familiar to us in a way because it's related to the Triceratops family and has that trademark big frilly collar framing its face.
3: And what a face! You know, Scott, this new dinosaur that you found has been described as strange and unusual looking, but I sort of wonder if that's fair or even distinguishing for dinosaurs because, you know, they're already pretty bizarre. What kind of morphology do you have to exhibit to stand out from this lizardy crowd?
1: Well, the name of this new dinosaur is Nesutoceratops, which translates from Latin as big nose horn face. Sounds like an insult, but it's actually pretty descriptive. This animal does have a larger nose than any of its relatives, and it does have these incredibly long horns over its eyes that stretch all the way to the front of the snout.
3: Well, I have to say that looking at the skull of this thing, I mean, those horns kind of look like what you'd find on a Texas longhorn. Were those horns for defense? That might give you some insight into their personality.
1: For a long time, we thought that all these weird bells and whistles on dinosaur skulls, hooks, horns, spikes, etc. were used to fend off predators. Now the dominant idea, and one which I strongly agree with, is that they were used to compete for mates. It's all about sex, either to attract members of the opposite sex, or intimidate, or even do battle with members of the same sex.
3: But how do you know that the horn was used to, you know, impress potential mates and, and not used to fend off these meat eaters?
1: Right. We can't know any of these things for absolute certain. But if we look today around at the animal world, we find lots of horned animals, deer, antelope, even chameleons and the occasional ant that have horns. And they use these things almost exclusively, if not certainly first and foremost, in the competition for mates rather than beating up on predators. And the fact that every species of horned dinosaur has a different set of these things once again suggests that it's less about defending themselves against predators and more about something to do with that specific species.
3: Now, these guys weren't predators themselves. You can tell that from their teeth, right? I mean, did did these guys eat meat or did they have an all-veggie diet? They were definitely all
1: veggies. They have a parrot-like beak up front for cropping probably lousy quality food because when you're that big, when you weigh a couple of tons, you just can't get by eating seeds and acorns. And they also had hundreds of teeth in the backs of the jaws that were constantly replaced like those of a shark. And those were used for slicing up the bigger chunks of plants into bite-sized pieces.
3: What about that nose? I mean, it's an impressive-looking nose, even though all the flesh is gone. You can tell this guy had a super
1: schnoz. Yes, and... uh... As to what it's for, it's difficult to say. It was not for uh, improving the sense of smell. The part of the nose that's expanded is equivalent to the outer chamber of our nose, the part, if you don't mind me saying, that you could put your finger into, which has nothing to do at all with sense of smell. That's further back in the head. So the big nose may have had to do with cooling the brain, sending out warm blood and sending back cooler blood, or it may have had to do with showing off if there were soft tissues attached, elephant seals and other animals, Animals make noises with their noses, and it's possible these dinosaurs did the same.
3: Now, this was also a frilled dinosaur. I mean, it has this big sort of halo-looking bony, bony thing around the back of its neck, and it kind of scalloped. It looks like it was cut out with pinking shears or something like that. That's the kind of thing I've seen in Triceratops, which, of course, every kid knows, these big horned dinos.
1: Yeah, Triceratops is the most famous of the horned dinosaurs. Nasutoceratops, the newest member of the family, also has this bony frill. Imagine taking the bones at the very back of your skull at the top and stretching them out so they're somewhere between three and five feet long. That's what horned dinosaurs do. And once again, it's probably for showing off. In some cases, this bone is just a few millimeters thick, and if it were to endure the bite of a tyrannosaur, that animal might very likely bleed out. So it's probably for making the animal look bigger and more impressive.
3: Well, let's talk about where these guys come from, because it's said that it was found in the American South, but of course it was in Utah, which I don't think of as being in the South. But I suppose America refers here to North America, And Utah was south compared
1: to western Canada, right? Right, and in here we're actually talking about a different landmass altogether, something we call Laramidia. So let me take you back for a second, 76 million years in time. It's a hothouse world, sea levels are higher. There's a shallow sea which is separating North America into Eastern and Western landmasses. And these dinosaurs lived on the Western landmass that we know as Laramidia. And in particular, these new Utah dinosaurs lived in the Southern part of Laramidia, or Western North America. And there was a whole different community of dinosaurs living at the same time just a thousand miles further north in Montana and Alberta, places like that. Let me
3: make sure, Scott, that I understand the topography here. America, what we think of as the United States now, of course, had this big inland sea that covered places like, well, Wyoming and and, and parts of Utah, Colorado, I suppose, that went up and sort of split the East Coast from the West Coast, but it didn't go all the way up to the Arctic Ocean, right?
1: In fact, this shallow sea went all the way from the Arctic Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico. And for about 20 million years, East and West America were completely separate from one another. They had no land connection. So these dinosaurs were evolving independently. As to why, There were two communities one in the north and one in the south on Laramidia we don't know for sure people think there might have been a mountain range that separated them or a river system but I find these explanations um, less than compelling I think there may have been ecological reasons that there may have been different plants in the north and the south and this place may have been extremely diverse in terms of its plants more like the tropics today than the mid-latitudes so Scott Now, pseudoceratops
3: had a cousin a little farther north. You know, if if you put these guys side by side, how obvious would the differences be? What would they be?
1: Well, the differences are primarily on the skull roof, the frills, the horns, etc. But when we compare these two communities of dinosaurs north and south, we find the same major groups of dinosaurs. We find duck-billed and horned dinosaurs, armored dinosaurs, tyrannosaurs, little raptors, etc. But we find different species of these dinosaurs in the north and the south. And that's a surprise to us. We expected to find the same kinds. And they typically differ, these species, on features of the skull, not always, but in many cases that it really is these bizarre structures, these horns and frills that the dinosaurs used to distinguish each other that now we paleontologists use to distinguish them millions of years later. And what
3: about the sort of bigger picture here? What does this discovery say about our understanding of dinosaurs?
1: This discovery is very interesting on a number of levels. It tells us about a brand new dinosaur. It actually tells us about a, a group, a of horn dinosaurs, a branch of the horn dinosaur family tree that we didn't even know about before, suggesting there are many more discoveries to be had in the south of Laramidia, but most important it tells us that we really don't know very much about the Mesozoic world of dinosaurs. We see the world through ice house eyes because we're still living in an ice house world even though it's warming up. The dinosaurs lived in a hothouse world where there were no polar ice caps and ecology and evolution may have operated very differently in this ancient world. So remarkably By studying the Mesozoic world of dinosaurs, we may be um, starting to understand how our own world will be in about a hundred years if global warming continues at its present pace.
3: You know, just about every kid I've ever encountered is interested in dinosaurs. And as a consequence, I think a lot of them want to have your job. At least they want that when they're kids. They they imagine dino hunters traipsing across a desert landscape and spotting some bone or horn
1: sticking out of the sand. Is that the way it works? Sure. I mean, look at me. I'm the kid who never grew up, right? I just went from a sandbox in my backyard to a planet-sized sandbox. And there are amazing things to be discovered. We're finding new dinosaurs every single year. And when you're out there wandering around in these places that most people call badlands, which for us are the good lands then you do find just little bits of bone sticking out in the surface, and it's a lot like sleuthing, detective work. You have to chase those fossils into the hill, and most of them don't turn out to be very much at all, but occasionally you get lucky and you find something that no human has ever seen before, and that's what keeps you going out there in the hot sun week after week, month after month.
3: Well, in the case of Nasutoceratops, what was sticking out of the dirt? Was it just a little bit of a tooth or a bone?
1: Yeah, a little bit of the skull was sticking out, and uh, one of my graduate students at the time, a fellow named Eric Lund, found it. He helped to dig it up. He prepared it in the lab, and he, he actually worked on it for his master's thesis as well. So there's not many people that get a chance to follow an animal like that from the moment of discovery all the way to the research being published. What What is the time scale for that? How long does it take between seeing that bone sticking out of the dirt or whatever— and,
3: you know, dusting it off with the brushes like we always see in the uh, the documentaries on television, then eventually seeing it stacked up at the local museum. Is that a matter of months, years? What is it?
1: A lot of people feel that uh, the way it goes is that you discover this dinosaur on the side of a hill and you pick up your satellite phone and call CNN and announce it to the world it really doesn't work that way at all it takes weeks to uncover it we have to then wrap it up in plaster and burlap a helicopter has to be called to carry it out it has to be transported to a museum where then somebody with the patience of a saint typically a volunteer spends anywhere from months to years preparing it then the research has to be done then a paper has to be written and uh, submitted and reviewed and all that and typically that process takes on the order of years. Scott Sampson, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much Seth, appreciate it.
2: Scott Sampson is a paleontologist at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He's also the author of Dinosaur Odyssey, Fossil Threads in the Web of Life. And if hearing about these amazing creatures causes you to regret the fact that dinosaurs are in the past tense, well they're not. Scott Sampson adds a final thought. Dinos still walk and fly the Earth today.
1: I like to remind people that dinosaurs aren't actually extinct. The big ones like T. rex are gone, but... Birds are actually living dinosaurs. There are more dinosaurs around today than there are mammals because all birds are dinosaurs. So if you eat chicken, that means you like to eat dinosaur. And if you actually want to study dinosaurs, you don't need to go to university for 10 years and get a Ph.D. All you need to do is step outside the front door. Those dinosaurs are out there waiting for you in the backyard.
2: Coming up, the job of anthropologists is not just to unearth bones and relics, but to help deepen our understanding of the past. And sometimes that has implications for our present identity. An international project is underway to learn more about a dark and shameful chapter in modern history. The aim of Eurotest is to give a greater understanding of the transatlantic slave trade. We'll hear from researchers next.
3: It's Big Picture Science.
0: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups.
3: examining the past is not always easy. It's one thing to study how life existed on this planet tens of millions of years ago, the deep past, and it's quite another to examine recent human history whose effects still resonate, and sometimes painfully.
2: An international team of scientists has begun looking anew at one of those historic events called the Eurotask Project. It's wielding the tools of modern genetics to examine the transatlantic slave trade, Other disciplines are involved as well, such as anthropology,
3: archaeology, history, and even philosophy. The intention is to examine how slavery shaped the biological and cultural identities of people of African descent around the world. Some of the research projects are located in geographical areas that were part of the trade route, such as the island of St. Helena off the coast of West Africa, which is, of course, where the slave ships sailed to the Americas.
4: The majority of the boats left Africa went to either the Caribbean or to South America. And then some boats went up to North America. And then boats left from those sites, from South America and the Caribbean, and went to Europe. And then from Europe back down to Africa. So it was a triangular trade.
2: Fatima Jackson is an advisor to Eurotast. She's a biologist and anthropologist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and at Howard University, where she also serves as director of the Cobb Lab. She described what Eurotast can add to one of the most disturbing chapters of modern history.
4: Well, it will tell us where the Africans came from, it will help us understand the presence of African ancestry in European populations. It will give us some idea about the the history of the trade itself and then how cultural identity was transformed during the course of the transatlantic slave trade. And so they're using what's called ancient DNA analysis, which is DNA that's extracted from the bone, from skeletal material, from the, the skeletal remains of enslaved Africans, And they'll extract the DNA from those materials. And then based upon the genetic sequence in that DNA, they'll try to link it back to a particular region or cluster of ethnic groups in West or West Central Africa, but also possibly Southeastern or Southwest
2: Africa. For example, I believe that one dig site is on the island of St. Helena off the west coast of Africa. Is that right?
4: Yes, that's correct. So they're collecting sites from the Caribbean, a few sites in South America, and then in Africa. And um, I believe that they have worked out an arrangement with the various countries so that they have access to the skeletal material.
2: In the the information that comes out of Eurotask, it sounds like this is a way of deepening our understanding of what transpired. And can you can you give me an idea of something very specific that we might learn that might actually change the story for us or help us to understand?
4: Yeah, well, uh, before I give you the specifics, I'd just like to say that that healing comes about through knowledge. So the knowledge can be the basis for healing this trauma, and it's really an ongoing trauma of the transatlantic slave trade. So a, a good example of this would be if we could identify the genetics of the populations that were brought to the Americas, we may find that some of the genes that came with the people were very adaptive in the African environment. But in the American context, some of those genes contribute, along with environmental factors, to some of the health disparities.
2: For example, I read that there was a there's a proclivity for uh, hypertension and stroke in the Carolinas and this seems to reflect a a similar sensitivity well it reflects an inherited sensitivity to salt in people from Congo. Is that that's right? That's
4: true. Yes, I, yes, we think we think that that's a very viable hypothesis because the soil uh, close to the equator in Africa which runs through Gabon and Congo and so forth Uh, the soil is salt deficient or sodium deficient and the plants therefore are sodium deficient so that has selected evolutionarily for a population that has genes that conserve salt so when you take people from a salt deficient area and you take them to a place like the Carolinas where salt is is very much in everything (laughs) in the environment I mean then increased hypertension stroke end-stage renal disease, those should be expected outcomes, you know, because there's a, a, what we could call a mismatch between the environment and the genetic background of the people.
2: So this this is prompted, this project is prompted in part by African Americans, black Americans wanting to understand more about their own identity, in this case, their genetic identity, and and their health. Uh, I mean, being able to trace back I guess, the the origins of, of certain diseases. But I would guess that it's also about a greater question of identity as well. And to what degree can you help answer some of those questions?
4: That's a very interesting question. Because although there are a lot of commercial ancestry test groups that purport to tell African Americans what specific ethnic group in Africa they may have come from, that's actually not as accurate as they pretend it is
2: can you excuse me can you give me an example of that so what might one of those companies those dna testing companies or uh, genetic organizations what might they say to someone say living in the carolinas
4: they might tell an individual oh we found that you are yoruba and here's a certificate to show that you're yoruba but in fact the genes that they're looking at are too few to make that kind of conclusive identification and the time frame is different because Africans in the Americas like African Americans have been separated from Africa for only 400 years but the genes that we're looking at some of those genes are 100,000 years old or 80,000 years old so none of the ethnic groups that were in Africa even 400 years ago were the same ethnic groups that would have existed 80,000 years ago. So it's, it's a confusion of deep time versus historical time.
2: Well, is there a marker, a specific marker, or is there one marker that identifies Africans as Africans? And I ask this because I know that you've also written that if you go back and you really look at the entire of the genome, we're all Africans.
4: We are, we are, and that's the that's the most amazing thing. Honestly, there's no such thing as an African gene or an Irish gene. By the time we go back 120, 150,000 years, all of our ancestors are in Africa, and they're just humans, you know? They're just humans. And we only get successful migrations of humans out of Africa, of a subset of humans out of Africa, at around fifty to sixty thousand years ago. This is modern humans, people like us. And those people that leave, well, they're Africans. <laughs> so so yeah, they, they go through subsequent mutations and so forth, and we now call them Europeans and Asians, you know, and Native Americans. But at their heart they're still Africans. We are humans, Homo sapiens sapiens, and that That second sapiens is actually the racial designation.
2: So in this project, uh, Eurotast, I mean, certainly one of the goals, and it sounds like this is what you're helping to foster, is that our genetic similarities are greater than our differences. And it's important as an origin story for all of us. But it is also an important project to understand the transatlantic slave trade, and the concept of African identity. And how will this project help help us deepen that understanding, that identity?
4: You know, it's... I'm trying to find the words to explain it. Let me give you a quick example. When I was searching through Ancestry.com, and I, I was looking at my father's last name, which is fairly unique, and I went back and went back and went back and found my great, great, great-grandfather who came from Wales to, to Illinois, who was the progenitor of my great-great-grandfather who went to Alabama and found and purchased Emma. And Emma was a slave and then brought her to Missouri. And I looked on the, the 1850 census and there it said, Emma, domestic servant. She's working in the house. And And I saw her children, and I saw you know the the man who became my great grandfather, and you know and so forth. I could trace it.
2: Excuse me, one of Emma's children became your great grandfather, yes,
4: yes, so when I saw this, I said, first of all, I had no idea that I had an ancestor from Alabama, so I went to look, of course in the in the ship manifest to see what Emma had come over in 1823 that could have been my great-great-grandmother. And of course, there was a long list. The trail ran dead. So while I, I was both elated and saddened that I couldn't trace my African ancestry any further back on that side of the family. But, you know it made me realize that we're very much all connected. And even if I I don't know what tribe she came from in Africa, I know for a fact that she came from somewhere in Africa, somewhere probably in West or West Central Africa. That's a likely probability. And you start to feel an affinity, you know? You immediately start to feel this connection to other people when, when you have the genetic, the indisputable genetic information in front of you. And, and if, if these things work properly, then you, all of humanity will be drawn together. This is why I'm such a big proponent. I believe everyone in the world should be tested. And if we go back far enough, we'll all see we're related to each other. And God help us. Maybe we'll start treating each other better.
2: That's an optimistic, (laughs) if not utopian view.
4: Yes, indeed. But that's, That's how I try to wake up every morning, optimistic and utopian. (laughs) You know, we have to use the science to better our lives.
2: It's interesting you say that because you presented your optimistic portrait of how knowledge can bring us all together, but some of those stories, they also reveal the capacity of human cruelty and brutality. And why don't they just deepen resentment and division?
4: Um, You know... It, it presents us with a choice. You can stay angry and destroy yourself because anger always destroys the angry person before it destroys the target of the anger. Or you can say this is a a designed effect in us as human beings. We can do something about it. We can try to change ourselves. We can just not give in to our emotions. We can, we can move out of a paleolithic mindset where anybody who doesn't look like us is the enemy to a 21st century point of view where we all work together, where we're less xenophobic, where we try to look at the person as, as a human being. That's, that's the utopia that I'm hoping to be a part of or hoping to contribute to. The knowledge puts things in perspective. As horrible as it is, at least it has a chance to heal.
2: Fatima Jackson, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: You're very welcome, Molly. Thank you so much for this interview.
3: Fatima Jackson is a biologist and anthropologist at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and at Howard University, where she also serves as director of the Cobb Lab. She is an advisor to the Eurotask Project.
2: Now, while that project gains momentum, other excavations have already provided insight into the identity of people of African descent. The African Burial Project has been underway at the African Burial Ground in New York City for more than 20 years. The site is the nation's largest known African-American burial ground and one of the oldest. An estimated 15,000 enslaved and free Africans were buried here between the 17th and 18th centuries. Researchers are using the tools of 21st century natural science to bring into relief questions about history and identity.
3: Joseph Jones is a biological anthropologist at the College of William and Mary. As a student at Howard University, which partnered with the government to do excavations, he began doing chemical analysis on the teeth of more than 400 individuals that had been buried and exhumed in this small plot of land in lower Manhattan. He's not a part of the Eurotest project, but he says the goals of deepening our collective history are complementary to his own work.
0: Uh, I think that the sciences uh, bring to this study of uh, diasporic peoples and to the study of, in this case, the transatlantic slave trade, a uh, deeper history, a deeper understanding of you know, people's experiences. We can estimate where people were born, who was born in Africa versus the Americas. That's what the research has been about uh, with respect to the African burial ground. Uh, we can reconstruct diets, uh, migration patterns, and health trends uh, to a much greater degree.
3: Okay, now your raw material is the African Burial Ground in New York, and my understanding is that that's uh, there in lower Manhattan, uh, really in the middle of the city, but it wasn't in the middle of the city when it was uh, first put in place.
0: Correct. It was about a mile north of the uh, boundaries of the border of uh, Contemporary Wall Street, actually. And as the city expanded, it expanded over the burial ground.
3: Well, you know, originally when the Dutch occupied New York or, or, you know, setting up New Amsterdam there in mm-hmm. Manhattan, there wasn't this uh, injunction against burying African-Americans or enslaved Africans, I should probably say here. They could be buried anywhere, I suppose. But when the English took it over and changed the name from New Amsterdam to New York, that changed.
0: Absolutely. Uh, they through a period in New Amsterdam, uh, what some historians have called kind of quasi-freedom, uh, Uh, And so that was one of the major changes that came about uh, in about 1664 or so when the uh, uh, the British took over and it became New York.
3: So the General Services Administration of the U.S. government was going to build a tower there. They run into the burial ground. What's the reaction? I mean, the fact that you're going to excavate... That's uh, you know a little bit in contradiction to what I see so often. For example, you know Native American burial grounds, where they say, "Yeah, leave them alone. We we don't want this excavated. Just put a fence around it and uh, you know leave it intact." You're
0: spot on. Uh, uh, It was a contentious project from the uh, beginning, and as you can imagine, opinions ranged. You know they ran the gamut from people who wanted to uh, leave the cemetery untouched, you know a sacred ground, uh, which it was, to people who wanted to focus primarily on the scientific value uh, of the uh, remains. I began working on the project as a student at Howard University, and, uh, you know, we kind of fell in the middle. You know, we appreciated, of course, the value. Here was the earliest, largest, non-Indigenous cemetery uh, in North America. At the same time, you know, we had shared a lot of the feelings of the descendant community with respect to the sacredness of the site and others who kind of advocated uh, against its study. Uh, But this kind of highlights one of the specific Uh, reasons that this site became so important, uh, and that is that, you know, had this been a Native American site, there's a very good chance that people would not have wanted uh, the degree of uh, research conducted uh, that people did here. But the nature of the slave trade was that people didn't know, you know, where people originated. Uh, They didn't know anything about the, or didn't know much about the cultural practices, uh, the ones that were lost, the ones that were maintained, and so forth. And so uh, for African-Americans, often they really kind of crave, you know, this knowledge. And in this case, science was able to answer questions that had long gone unanswered. Uh, And also the sciences had progressed to the point that we could determine a lot from, you know, in our case, we look at teeth. We do dental chemistry. And a little piece of enamel can tell us quite a bit about, you know, where a person was born. Uh, and even, uh, to some extent, whether or not they migrated within Africa or, you know, from Africa to the Americas. And so we could do a lot more with a lot less at this point as well. So all of those things kind of came together uh, nicely.
3: Now, you mentioned teeth as uh, as your data set. There, there are very sophisticated techniques these days that allow you to analyze something like teeth for trace amounts of various substances, and apparently they discovered quite a bit of lead in the teeth of some of these individuals. What was going on there? Yes, that's the
0: focus of my uh, research has been for the past uh, decade or so. And uh, you're absolutely right. We use a kind of fancy uh, method called laser ablation, inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. (laughs) And that's a fancy way of saying that uh, we're able now to zap the tooth with the laser and actually measure the chemical composition. So it doesn't have to be a tooth, it could be a penny, a pencil, you name it. Uh, In our case, we're interested in the teeth because the enamel does not remineralize over the course of life. What that means is that you know, we say we are what we eat. Well, in some instances, we are what we eat, what we drink, even what we breathe, and that's how lead can enter the body. Uh, And so the reason that we were able to use lead to source individuals geographically is because during this time frame, Uh, Lead was highly used, uh, used widely uh, in the colonial Americas and very little use, uh, certainly very little technological use in Africa, West Africa, where people originated. And so the lead that made its way into individuals' bodies probably would have done so in the Americas as opposed to Africa.
3: So what were they doing with this lead? I mean, lead was used, I don't know, for medicinal purposes, but that's not Mm -hmm. what you're talking about here.
0: Uh, it could be. Great. That's that's uh, great. Uh, lead was used in some uh, medicinals which could make its way into the child or via the mother's uh, breast milk uh, from the mother. Uh, but then also lead would have been in the water, runoff uh, drinking water, for example, that came down, uh, rainwater that came down on lead-painted roofs of uh, homes. Lead was in pewter uh, containers used for food, cooking, and for preparation and storage. Uh, lead would have been in the soil. Uh, we can look at a person who has relatively high amount of lead, we can also look at that individual and compare uh, the bones and for indicators of, say, anemia, iron deficiency stress, and look for those types of comparisons, look for those relationships or correlations that might suggest what was going on with the person in terms of cause of death, uh, ultimately. Uh, we can piece together, potentially, even whether or not a person migrated within Africa, looking at if we kind of delve into the chemical toolkit a little deeper and look at some of the other isotopic uh, tools that are available to us, uh, we can actually determine, for example, whether or not a person had a primarily marine-based diet as opposed to a terrestrial-based diet, which might indicate whether or not they spent more time on the coast or more time in the African hinterland before coming to the Americas. So they're really, really kind of you know these deeply personal stories that we can get at now.
3: This sounds like the usual admonition given to people who want to write well, and that is to eschew the general for the specific that, that that's you know, right. and you're producing stories about individuals.
0: Exactly. That's, I think that's where the, uh, certainly where the science, you know, can take us now. And we can incorporate that, of course, into larger narratives and larger collective stories. But uh, these are people whose, again, whose names, you know, we may never know, but as the uh, uh, historian Ira Berlin has said, you know, understanding that a person uh, was enslaved is only really the beginning of the story and not the end as it once was. And so whereas for a variety of reasons, slavery, the study of uh, African diasporic peoples, uh, used to be told in a rather monolithic fashion, now we're able to kind of tease out a lot of differences and we can kind of use our information, our data, uh, and incorporate it with that of what the uh, historians are doing and tell some really, really rich, and as I say, personal stories.
3: Well, finally, Joe... This emphasis on individuals, I think, is fantastic. I, I, I hope that this is going to be published in some way that, you know, people can just read about some of these people. their their stories to the extent we know them. But Fatima Jackson says that, you know, the genetic analysis from the Eurotest Project is actually showing what makes us similar, showing us that, you know, we're all Africans. Is she right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. The um, I think that the uh, Eurotest Project confirms this, the variety of different kind of large-scale genomic genetic studies are confirming this. I worked on a, another project called the Race Project, or understanding race and human variation, and our ultimate goal was to get people to understand that our human diversity is beautiful, worth celebrating, but that we can really only understand it within the context of what we share, that we are, you know, all one species. And so there's that aspect uh, of it. And then also the stories that we're telling, you know, even uh, the story of lead uh, today, Recently, in Washington, D.C., there was the uh, lead water uh, scare or crisis. And this was something that affected people across the boundaries, that affected people across kind of race and class uh, divisions. And so these are questions, I think, that are of interest to everyone.
3: Joe Jones, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
2: Joseph Jones is a biological anthropologist and a visiting assistant professor at the College of William & Mary. The African Burial Ground Memorial in New York City is part of the National Park Service. You can find a link to it on our website.
3: It's Big Picture Science.
5: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, one since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
3: We're talking a lot about what we can learn about ourselves when we unearth bones and other remains in dirt. But while clues to our history, to paleontology and anthropology, are in that dirt, it turns out that it's more than just packaging. There's also something to be learned from the dirt itself.
2: Sarah Young discovered this while she was a graduate student doing research on prenatal nutrition in East Africa. And there she met a woman with a surprising snacking habit.
5: Yeah, so I was doing a study of maternal anemia, and I was interviewing women in Zanzibar, Tanzania, about what it was that they ate when they were pregnant. And I was sitting in Mama Sharifa's backyard, and I said to her, her back was against the mud wall of her house, and I said, so what do you eat when you're pregnant? What do you crave? And she said, well, every day, twice a day, I take a chunk of earth from the wall of this house and I eat it. And this was in Swahili, and my Swahili is good, but not great. And I said to my research assistant, did I understand her correctly? Is she really eating earth? And at that point, Mama Sharifa held out a piece to me, and I popped it in my mouth, and That became the focus of my research for the last 10 years.
3: The desire to eat dirt may be a surprise, but it isn't unusual, as Sarah Young discovered. A decade after this first encounter... She's now a research scientist in the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell University, and she's learned that we're more tightly bound to Mother Earth than we realize.
2: She, like many of us, was told at a young age to wash her hands and to clean off the dirt. Now, we won't dispute that in general that's still a good idea, but the practice of geophagy, the deliberate consumption of dirt, is a healthy one found just about everywhere, and especially among pregnant women and young children.
3: It's one kind of pica, which is the broad term for the craving and consumption of non-food items. Craving Earth, Understanding Pica, the Urge to Eat Clay, Starch, Ice, and Chalk is Sarah Young's book.
5: Pica is a term that implies people are seeking this stuff out to eat it, often because they are craving it. And geophagy, which is one of the types of pica, there's other types of pica, can be both purposive, like you do it intentionally, or you accidentally eat a little bit of the dirt that's stuck to your carrot from your garden.
3: Okay, but that's an accidental thing. I, I don't consider that eating dirt. That's like eating bugs because you ride a motorcycle, but it's <laughs> it's, it's not you know it, it's it's not a diet choice, right?
5: Right. Yeah. So why do people eat these non-food substances? And there are a number of explanations. Um, the first is no good reason. Pregnant women, and I can say this because I've been one, know not what they do, or so people claim. And so there's no functional purpose, no adaptive benefit. Another explanation for eating these non-food items is hunger. So people who don't have other things to eat, eat things that aren't really seemingly palatable, like earth. Another explanation is that these items work as some sort of nutritional supplement, maybe rich in iron or calcium or other nutrients that are lacking in the diet. And a fourth explanation, and the one I lean towards, is that it, surprisingly, is protective. So dirt, in fact, can be cleansing if it is highly rich in clay. And clay, as we all know, is very absorptive. So this absorptive qualities of earth can absorb harmful things like pathogens or other harmful chemicals that we swallow.
3: All right. Well, I want to see what eating dirt is like. So I have in front of me a plate of cookies. I mean, I, I couldn't bring myself to actually eat dirt, but I will eat this cookie, so perhaps you can tell me how eating dirt would be different. Is that, is that okay with you? Okay. All right. I'm going to take a bite. Now, mm, this, this cookie is sweet. If I were eating dirt instead, what would, what would I taste? Would it be sweetness?
5: Well, there's a lot of different varieties of dirt, but you should know that the earth that's most frequently craved is often clay-rich, so it probably crumbles like a cookie. It's, it's always very dry and kind of powdery, so there would be, maybe there are crumbs in your lap.
3: And, and what about the texture? I mean, is it, because this, this cookie's pretty crunchy, and I kind of like that. Well,
5: you'll have to tell me what kind of cookie you're having.
3: Well, I don't know. It was supplied to me by somebody, and it said, here's a plate of cookies. It's chocolate, and it's covered, it's dusted in flour, so my fingers are all getting white here.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, the clay that people eat is usually very homogeneous, so there are no bits and pieces of anything. People talk a lot about eating clean dirt. Um, for example, I've been, a lot of my work has been in Tanzania, and I've walked for 45 minutes through some really thick jungle to find exactly this place with the best dirt, when all of the dirt looked the same to me. Can you go to the market and buy it? Absolutely, I've been in many markets where, it's, in East Africa, for example, where it's sold amongst the spices and bananas and and coconuts. How how much and how often were they eating this stuff? Yeah, so pregnant women are are eating this stuff just about every day, and the amount is if you if you cup your hand and you sort of think of what would cover the palm, that's about thirty grams, thirty to fifty grams. That's about how much people eat in one day.
3: Okay, but from a biological point of view, why are we chowing down on dirt like this? I mean, to begin with. Does it have any nutritional value?
5: Yeah. So, earlier I alluded to what the four explanations are, and our group has spent a lot of time looking at especially the nutritional value of geophagic substances. And what we find is that, in fact, it is often, not all substances, but many of them are quite high in iron. But the special thing about iron is that it's tightly regulated by our bodies, which means that it's not very easy to absorb. And even when we find geophagic earth that's high in iron, we find that it's not what we call bioavailable. It it can't be absorbed by our bodies. In fact, what we are finding is that it's absorbing iron that's in our diet already. So by eating even this clay that's high in iron, it's not increasing our iron and it's taking away some of the iron that's in our diet otherwise.
3: And what about its protective qualities? I mean, you mentioned that pregnant women often will eat dirt. And is that because of what it does for your ability to use the iron that you've eaten, or is it uh, something else?
5: Well, when you think about pregnancy, um, you're in a, an immunologically compromised state. Um, the fetus is half of your genetic material, but it's also half of someone else's. And so your, your own immune system needs to be active, for example. You are more susceptible to other infections and pathogens. Also, your growing fetuses, rapidly dividing cells, are some of the most vulnerable ones. So this, we are thinking, is a protective behavior, shielding you from harmful things that you would be exposing yourself and your fetus to.
3: What's the mechanism for that? I mean, you you say it has a protective ability, but how does it protect you? I mean, are there chemicals in it or is it working like a sponge to soak up toxins or is it protecting you some other way?
5: Yeah, great question. So we think that there are a couple of mechanisms by which this works. And as you eat your cookie, I want you to think about this sort of dry, powdery, absorptiveness that clay and these other pica substances might have. So other pica substances include charcoal, cornstarch, chalk. All of those things are also dry and powdery and very absorptive. So we think that when you swallow these items, they may bind with the food-containing harmful things that you've eaten, as well as binding with the mucin layer in your gut making a kind of barrier between the food that you've eaten and the bloodstream that it would need to pass through.
3: Now, occasionally, I know people will be asked to take, uh, I don't know, barium sulfate or things like that to line their stomach. I think that even some indigestion remedies operate this way. They they don't actually chemically interact with what's in your tummy. They just sort of, you know, put an extra layer there of kind of a lining to protect the, the walls there. Does dirt do that at all?
5: That's exactly right. So kaopectate, the K-A-O of kaopectate, it comes from kaolin, which is a type of clay. Now, kaopectate is no longer made with clay in the United States, but when it was, it had that effect. It was an, an antidiarrheal through its mechanistic properties.
3: Why is it no longer made?
5: The clay that they were using came from California and was found to be tainted with lead.
3: Oh, doesn't sound like it was very good for you. Okay. But, but you... my
5: understanding is that in Canada, the date is still made with clay, and I would love to get my hands on a sample of that.
3: <laughs> Archaeologists have apparently found evidence for eating dirt that goes back, I don't know, thousands of years. What kind of evidence could you possibly have that would tell you that?
5: Yeah, so clay was found at an archaeological site where Homo habilis, so that's something like two million years ago, where the bones of Homo habilis were dug up. And it was clay that wasn't native to the area, wasn't local to the area, and it wasn't being used for clay pots. And I think even the dentition in these remains indicated where that suggested clay consumption.
3: Okay. So it's it's compelling, uh, if you will, circumstantial evidence. What about other animals? I mean, going back even farther than Homo habilis.
5: I can't say going back any further, but I can say we can't always look at human behavior and say that's what they're doing is reliably adaptive, certainly. But we can look at other animal species to learn from their behaviors. And what we see is that hundreds and hundreds of animal species engage in earth eating. And I'm not talking about earth eating just for salt licks. Salt licks is a very common phenomenon, but this isn't that. These are animals who are looking at searching out and at great risk to themselves at points, earth that's high in clay and contains no sodium. And a couple examples of that are the parrots in the Amazon who will fly down to where they're they're much more at risk of predators to eat clay from some of the cliffs. And, And in a recent study, baboons have been shown to consume earth, especially the pregnant ones.
3: Well, okay, Sarah, it seems that there may have been benefits to making mud pies, particularly if you chewed around the edges a bit. But our parents were also correct in asking us to wash our hands because it seems that dirt also has dangerous viruses and bacteria. That would be my first thought that, you know, eating this might be actually bad for you.
5: Right. Well, the important thing to emphasize here is that people are not just eating any earth. People have very particular types of earth that they're seeking out and they really enjoy the types of earth that they do find. I mean, people relish this stuff. So the mouthing behavior of a of a 1-year-old who's exploring his or her environment That is not something that we can say, oh, that's a detoxifying behavior. We want the child to have clean hands. What we're starting to rethink is the visceral response of, like, eating earth, that's disgusting. Eating dirt, you know, we stay away from dirt. But to really think, what are the the larger adaptive benefits of this behavior?
3: Sarah Young, thank you so very much for talking with us.
5: Thanks. It's been my pleasure.
2: Sarah Young is a research scientist in the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell University. She's the author of Craving Earth, Understanding Pica, the Urge to Eat Clay, Starch, Ice, and Chalk. Well, while you were eating that cookie, Seth, and Sarah was describing eating dirt, did the flavors change at all in your
3: mouth? Well, you know, I was expecting cookie flavor. I think that (laughs) that if it had turned too much to dirt flavor, I probably would have spat it out of my mouth. Well, if
2: you're not used to eating dirt, that's exactly what you do, right? So if the dirt is on a vegetable or whatever, when we get it into our mouth, we spit it out. It seems incredible that you would actually scoop up some dirt and, and just eat it.
3: Yeah, although I have to say I'm not entirely surprised by that because, after all, I mean, dirt's been part of the environment since the first wiggly things uh, you know, began here on Earth. So it's not surprising to me that if there's anything valuable for you in, in eating some dirt that uh, we hadn't discovered that a long time ago.
2: Well, and we eat plants, and plants are very close to the dirt.
3: Not for me, Molly. I only eat things that grow in very high trees. Yeah. Have you seen where the roots are of those trees, what they're dug into? I don't think I want to hear this. You have to get in touch. Touch with my roots.
2: (laughs) Thank you to our production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
2: Your ears have been attuned to digging our past. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through that link on our website. And while you're online, check out and even download the Big Picture Science app. You can find it on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because you like to get the dirt directly, check out the listening on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show.